Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Jeff Nobbs, CEO and co-founder at Zero Acre Farms. Zero Acre is developing a new category of healthy oils and fats made by fermentation. Also, you might notice that I'm not Jason. This is Cody Sims, Jason's partner at MCJ. I did today's interview with Jeff at Zero Acre Farms, and you'll hear me take on episodes here and there going forward. I was looking forward to this conversation with Jeff because vegetable oils have become such a huge part of the human diet, upwards of 20% of our average daily caloric intake. And the planting of palm, soybeans, and the like for vegetable oil cultivation are significant contributors to deforestation. So in thinking about systems problems that impact climate change, how we produce oils for food consumption is seemingly a big lever that's mostly yet to be pulled. Yet another oil problem. We have a great discussion about how vegetable oils are produced, how they've gained such prominence in our diets, and how Zero Acre is applying fermentation to try to change the game. And since their initial product has just become available on their website, you can try it for yourself and see what you think. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Cody. Great to be here. I am really fascinated to understand more about Zero Acre, but maybe before we do that, why don't you help us understand the broad landscape of vegetable oil? You know, we all eat it. I read somewhere it's up to somewhere around 20% of many humans' daily calorie intake. So it's clearly a big part of, of our diets and, you know, presumably the agricultural footprint associated with that. So maybe, maybe start by just talking to us about how vegetable oil is processed today. Yeah, you're exactly right. Vegetable oil is in pretty much everything these days. You know, one in every five calories we eat, like you said, and it's actually now the most consumed food in the world after rice and wheat. And the crazy thing about vegetable oil is that we never used to eat it. So it, it wasn't a meaningful part of any human diet up until about 100 years ago. 
and it's grown more than any other food in our diet. And it's still the fastest growing subsector of global agriculture. And, you know, this wouldn't be so much of an issue if it was grown extremely sustainably and efficiently, and it was producing foods that were, you know, doubling our IQ and allowing us to live forever. And, you know, we're superfoods. Unfortunately, that's not the case. So we're eating all these calories that are disproportionately bad for us from a caloric perspective and are also extremely bad for the environment, kind of no matter how you look at it, whether that's per kilogram or per nutrient. And so when you look at you know, vegetable oils as a whole, which we should say that includes things like soybean oil, palm oil, safflower oil, corn oil, there's a long list of these different types of oils, essentially oils that are pressed from grains and seeds. When you look at how they're grown, it's very inefficient. And so as a result, two of the top three drivers of global deforestation are vegetable oil crops, soy and, and palm oil. And we've plotted out you know, a bunch of different crops that people eat. And the most greenhouse gas emitting crops are also vegetable oil crops. So to answer your question about how they're grown, essentially farmers clear a plot of land, whether that's in the rainforest or another natural ecosystem, plant these tiny seeds, wait six months for them to grow into larger plants, pluck those seeds, press those tiny seeds for an even tinier amount of oil. And then you're left with some oil that's marketed as human food. And you're left with the leftovers, what's called a meal which is typically fed to factory farm animals. So just it's a whole unsustainable system. And there are a number of studies now showing that on the human health side, it's not so great when 20% of our calories are, are these vegetable oils. And I'm curious, I assume the other of the three methods that are causing deforestation, I assume the third is ranching for cattle mostly. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. It's, it's beef. Of which a lot of them are fed, you know, these soy and corn oil byproducts, as you mentioned. Yep. It's all interwoven. And so you hear of certain, I mean, obviously there's a big movement if you in the climate space to eat plant-based food, et cetera. And yet you're also hearing now, you know, not everything plant-based is necessarily good for us as humans or for the environment. Some of these vegetable oils, like, you know, I, I always think of olive oil or coconut oil or some of these as being more healthy and more sustainable. Is, is that generally true or you know, and, and palm and, and soybean and corn are kind of the quote unquote, you know, bad oils, or is it all shades of gray here? Yeah, it's shades of gray. It's half true. It's, you know, as much as our brains don't like it, there's a lot of nuance here and not every single food that comes from an animal is by definition unsustainable and not every single food that comes from a plant is by definition sustainable. It's all gray area and it's all nuanced. And in the case of vegetable oils, olive oil has probably the best reputation as the healthiest oil. And for good reason, it's certainly the least problematic for our health compared to something like a, a safflower oil, corn oil, soybean oil. But unfortunately, it has it has one of the worst environmental impacts. And this is something a lot of people don't know about olive oil, but it's like the almond of the oil crop world. It's by far the thirstiest crop. It uses hundreds of times more water than other vegetable oils, which are also fairly thirsty. And all vegetable oils are typically a problem either because of how they're grown or where they're grown. And in the case of olive oil, it's a little bit of both. In the case of something like a palm oil, which is the most consumed vegetable oil in the world, and for good reason, because it's the most productive. So with one acre of land of all conventional oils out there, you're going to get the most oil per acre from palm. The issue is it only grows within 10 degrees of the equator. And that happens to be where all of our biodiverse rainforests also are located. And so as a result, it has a very negative carbon footprint or very high carbon footprint, I should say. 
and you know a, a really negative impact on biodiversity. Coconut oil is actually worse than palm oil when it comes to biodiversity impact per liter of oil, because similar to palm, it only grows in the tropics. It's very picky about where it grows. And that's the case too with olive and avocado oil, not quite as picky as some of those other fruit oils like coconut and palm oil, but they require a lot of land. They, they require a lot of water. And frankly, they just haven't made headlines the same way palm oil has because their volume compared to palm is uh, you know, drop in the bucket. And then how would you compare, I mean, we talked about obviously, you know, ranching is the other big cause of deforestation today. How would you compare sort of the footprint of animal oils to vegetable oils and why are vegetable oils used more widely than, you know, animal fats in so much food production today? Animal fats fell out of fashion in the 1900s. And yeah, certainly animal products have, have a large footprint. When you look at what's being produced Vegetable oils are being produced in larger quantities in terms of weight than beef, chicken, and some seafood and dairy combined. And so big footprint and animal fats used to be what most, at least in America and much of the rest of the world used to cook with. And, you know, there's a big push away from saturated fats in the middle of the last century going into the 1990s. And so there were consumer advocacy groups that convinced McDonald's and Wendy's and Burger King to switch away from animal fats and switch to partially hydrogenated vegetable oils, which we now know as trans fats. Turns out that was a bad idea. And, you know, trans fats caused a lot of harm. So once trans fats were removed from restaurants and from packaged foods out of consumer demand in the early 2000s, they were replaced by palm oil and eventually by these other liquid oils like safflower and corn and soybean oil. Trans fats weren't actually formally banned until 2018. So they were in pretty widespread use until then. And what was the makeup of those generally? Yeah. So when you look at what fats are made of, they're saturated, monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, or there's this other category of trans fats, which a very small amount occurs naturally in, in certain animal products. But the majority in our, in our diet, you know, through much of the last century was from partially hydrogenating oils, which creates these kind of mutant fats that our bodies aren't used to. And so they cause all sorts of issues. But when you put them in a deep fryer, they're actually pretty stable. They don't break down like a canola oil does. So we thought, these were God's gifts to deep fryers because they kind of stayed liquid and creamy. They were also quite stable, but they're bad news for our health. So now we're using vegetable oils, which, you know, we're not going to go back to animal fats. We're not going to go back to trans fats. So we're pretty far down the list on the preferred source of, of fat here from a culinary perspective, but it's all that we're left with. We don't really have any, any other good alternatives. And one of the reasons that they're really used today is because they're liquid and that's quite helpful and is what we've come to be familiar with and you know in a restaurant setting i have a restaurant and we've used all sorts of different oils and fats and it is definitely easier to be able to just have a big jug and pour it in something than you know wait for a solid fat to melt so all of our systems our food service food manufacturing systems now many of them are built around handling liquid oils which you typically don't get from an animal fat and what's been the biggest driver of vegetable oil growth beyond, I mean, it sounds like obviously a big one of them was the fast food industry lobbying that you, that you just mentioned, but beyond that, you know, looking at, you know, just industrial food production in general, what has caused the upswing? Partly because of the growth in animal agriculture, we were growing a lot of soybeans and a lot of corn. And so we had this oil that was in these soybeans and corn, and we're trying to figure out, you know, what to do with it. And that was around the same time that the American Heart Association began recommending corn oil. They, they had a huge campaign around, you know, corn oil preventing heart attacks. So it, it started to be promoted as, as heart healthy. And, you know, you've probably seen the heart healthy thing that's kind of lost its meaning on everything from like Honey Nut Cheerios to, you know, Fruit Loops and beyond. 
And unfortunately, nutrition has more to do with politics these days than, than good science. And a lot of that started in the middle of the last century with the promotion of, of these never before consumed oils as, as being heart healthy. I mean, I have to ask with my climate hat on, obviously there was, there were huge efforts in the two thousands to lobby the growth of corn as a crop, you know, primarily to try to grow it into, into biofuel. I'm wondering how much of that also spilled over into, you know, corn oil as a, a food stock. It's a great point. And I think it's not an, an insignificant amount. Anytime we, we put a lot of resources into growing something productively and, you know, focusing a lot of attention on it and putting subsidies toward it, it makes it more accessible for any use, whether that's for biofuels or for food. And also going back to your question of, of how did these become so prevalent? Part of it is they're really, really cheap. And part of that is subsidies. Part of it is because we've dedicated our most productive land, some of the most productive land in the world in the continental U.S., we've decided to dedicate that to soy and to corn and to other oil crops. Certainly we could grow other things there, but we've done a really good job of growing those very productively. I grew up in Kansas and, you know, when I was a kid, it was all wheat. And today it's mostly corn. It's actually starting to move to cotton too, which is, which is fascinating. And cottonseed oil is the oil product of that crop. Interesting. Tell us a little, no, now that the stage is set, tell us a little bit about Zero Acre. So what are you building? How are you trying to solve this problem? Well, We've been pretty obsessed with this problem for a while, and we started with the problem and didn't necessarily know what the solution was going to be, but knew that something had to change to clear all this land and cause all these emissions and biodiversity loss. And obviously, y'all are my climate journey, and you think a lot about climate, but you as much as anyone know that there's a lot more to the story when it comes to it's not just about carbon in the atmosphere and oceans. It's about how does this impact people? How does this impact plant life and animals and smog and pollution and quality of life and biodiversity loss, so many different factors. And, and our food system plays a huge role in this. So we've been banging our head against the walls for a while now in our team on how are we going to get these destructive vegetable oils out of the food system? They're not good for us. They're not good for the planet. They've got to go. But like I said, there hasn't, there hasn't been a good alternative to them. And so we looked at, could we scale up olive oil? And then that's, we learned, nope, that would be bad. Olive oil has, you know, we'd end up like using the entire land mass of earth to make enough oil for our future. Animal fats, for a number of reasons, weren't the option, weren't the answer. Palm oil is so picky about where it grows. So we looked to other sources of fat. And turns out you can produce oils and fats using fermentation, not just using animals or plant crops. And we are fascinated by this. And I've been studying food and health and nutrition and have a restaurant and have been thinking about food's impact on the environment for a long time now. So when I saw what could be possible using fermentation to produce oils and fats, it was a, it was a light bulb moment. And it was clear that that was the answer. And, you know, it, it was gonna, it doesn't mean that overnight, all of a sudden, you know, all the vegetable oils in the world were going to be replaced by oils and fats made by fermentation, but it, it seemed like the way to go. So a few years ago, we started zero acre farms and, you know, started on a small scale and have worked with a number of really great partners and brought on a great team to, to scale up. And now our first product's on the market. It's called cultured oil. And it's a cooking oil made by fermentation. And the idea is that by bringing this oil to market that's made by fermentation, we can have a huge impact on, on the environment by displacing these foods that are disproportionately bad for the environment. And so just to clarify, with the cultured oil product and, and the zero acre process in general, are there still vegetable inputs into the oil you're creating? Or is it all based on microbiology? I have to mention the word vegetable in vegetable oil is such great branding because it's not oil pressed from kale and asparagus and lettuce, you know, it's from all of these industrial crops. 
And I think that was Crisco who first came up with that back in 1911. They called their product vegetable shortening, even though no one considered a cottonseed vegetable. But yeah, so there are plant-based inputs that go into the fermentation process. So the microorganisms that make up a culture, they need to feed on something and they feed most efficiently on natural plant inputs. And all that's taken into account in the LCA that reflects cultured oil sustainability numbers. But there's no seed or grain or plant that's actually pressed for oil. Actually, the most efficient way to produce oil is to produce carbohydrate or sugar in abundance because that's what plants are really, really good at. They're not so great at making fat and then allowing microorganisms to ferment those carbohydrates and sugars into healthy fats, which they do really, really efficiently. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I think of fermentation, obviously my mind immediately goes to beer and, you know, I think of barley and hops and, you know, yeast and really think of it as a carbohydrate or a sugar. I've never even considered that there is an oil or fatty byproduct there. Help me understand, you know, what that looks like and sort of even in, you know, sort of fermentation processes that we may think of outside of what you're building at Zero Acre. Like, is that a typical byproduct of a, of a fermentation process? You know, it's not just a byproduct, it's the main product. So when you look under a microscope at, we call it an oil culture, it's 80 to 90% lipids or oils or fats, depending on the organism and the process. So when we're pulling oil from a corn kernel, you know, you're talking like single digit percentage fat content. Our most productive crops are like 25, 30% oil content. So microorganisms are 80 to 90%. That's significantly higher. It's very efficient. So maybe I can step back and describe fermentation. It's a word that probably everyone has heard, but probably very few people would actually understand what fermentation means and what it is. So in the, in the context of food, fermentation describes the process where a community of microorganisms, also known as a culture, consume plant sugars and convert those sugars. And those, to your point, those sugars can come from things like barley, they can come from grapes, they can come from milk. And a culture transforms the sugars in those raw inputs into things like beer and wine and yogurt and cheese and all sorts of other fermented products that we've come to love. And most cultures we're used to seeing are like yeast or E. coli or something like that. Is that, is that generally correct? Yep. Yeast, E. coli, which is a species of bacteria, microalgae, fungi, a number of microorganisms. There are a number of microorganisms. And there are also microorganisms that instead of producing the lactic acid in yogurt or the alcohol in beer, they produce healthy fats. And so we call them an oil culture. And they're fed natural plant sugars and they transform those sugars into these healthy fats. And those fats are, are pressed from the culture and that's cultured oil. And the, the specific culture cocktail that you're using is sort of the secret sauce of zero, I assume. Yeah, that's one of the secret parts of the recipe, those specific inputs to that fermentation. But it's, it's all just natural stuff you could find out in the wild and grow very efficiently. And so there's not a specific, you know, gene editing or synthetic biology or anything involved in your process. It's all essentially a, a natural process then, if I'm hearing you correctly. So the plant sugars that are fed to the culture, those are non-GMO, you know, abundantly available plants. And those sugars can really come from any number of sources. We took a hard look at how we want to incorporate and what our philosophy is on incorporating technology into food. We we pretty strongly believe that when humans get too involved and start introducing new compounds in the, into the diet, it doesn't end well for us, you know, whether that's trans fats or our overconsumption of, you know, high fructose corn syrup and sugar. When we start eating something in large amounts for the first time, usually not a good idea. And in the case of GMOs, obviously it's a controversial topic. A lot of crops have been engineered to be 
herbicide and pesticide resistant, have BT toxins, you know, contain glyphosate and, and cause all these other issues. So no, we don't do any sort of gene editing like that, that would introduce any sort of new compound into the, into the human diet. It's just the same healthy fats that we've been eating for forever, essentially, but in an even better composition. So more of the good, less of the bad, and then made with a very low environmental footprint. And then let's talk about your go-to-market. So you've got a cultured oil product just now on the market. Is the focus direct-to-consumer sales? Are you looking to go industrial? Like, how are you planning to grow the the footprint of your both initial product as well as how do you see it growing over time? Yeah, we're starting with direct-to-consumer on our website. And this was a long process to kind of figure out, you know, where does it make the most sense to start? Is it in packaged foods? Is it B2B, you know, selling to other businesses? Is it selling to restaurants? Is it getting on grocery store shelves? Ultimately, we decided to start direct to consumer because we want to build the brand and build awareness and build education around this topic. And you can just learn really quickly when everything's digital and you know everything's everything's online. So that's where we're starting, but definitely have our sights set on restaurants and packaged food. I think that's ultimately where we'll have the biggest impact. That's where most people are getting vegetable oils in their diet. So we'll get there eventually, but yeah, starting with starting with consumer. And what are the flavor profiles of your initial batch? So oil in general is interesting in that in many ways, the target is to taste like very little, you know, you want the flavor of your food to really be the star of the show. And so cultured oil has a really clean, neutral taste. Some people describe it as lightly buttery or lightly nutty. You can imagine around, you know, around our office, we're doing a lot of oil tastings and like taking shots of oil. And so we've become, we've have very sensitive tongues now to the taste of oil. It's good just on its own. It's, it's tasty, but it's even better with food. And yeah, our, you know, our whole goal is even if you could care less about the environment and, and the health of the planet and the health of people, we want to just bring a product to market. That's the best in its class. And we think cultured oil is that we'll love to hear what, you know, what everyone else thinks now that the product's out, but it just tastes better and performs better. And so if the focus is at least initially, you know, home chefs and just cooking at home, like, is there a, a you know, flashpoint comparison? You know, I, I, you know, you're not supposed to cook olive oil really hot. You can use grapeseed oil or coconut oil at higher temps, et cetera. Like, I'm curious how that factors in as well. Yeah, it's one of the highest recorded smoke points. So an extremely high smoke point, which is great for your kitchen, obviously, also good for your health. And then on the other side of the temperature spectrum, if you've ever made a dressing at home using something like an olive oil or avocado oil and put it in the fridge, you'll start to kind of clump up and solidify after a day or two. So what's pretty cool about cultured oil is it doesn't do that because it, it has even more monounsaturated fats, which are like the good heart healthy heat stable ones, even more than olive or avocado oil. It stays liquid in the fridge, which is just convenient. And then when you're, when you're cooking oxidative stability is it's a term most people haven't heard of, but it's it's not just whether the oil is smoking, but what's actually happening on a molecular level. And is it staying stable or is it breaking down, turning rancid and turning into all these other toxic compounds? And, and cultured oil also has one of the highest oxidative stabilities out there. So yeah, it, it can really be used for anything. Well, I am uh, fairly addicted to making an evening bowl of popcorn in a whirly pop. So uh, going to have to try it with some cultured oil here, I think soon. Yeah, I can't wait to hear how that goes. <laughs> so, I mean, help me understand, you know, your background because, you know, you coming into this, you've worked in the food space for a few years, but that's not, you know, a deep part of your background, I don't think, but you, you clearly seem to know what you're talking about here. So I'd love, you know, you to take us a bit on your journey on, you know, how you ultimately got to building this business. Oh, let's see. My journey, food is a common thread 
throughout my journey. I've always been fascinated and interested in food ever since like middle school. I was I was turning over cans of soda and looking at the sugar content and trying to convince my family not to drink it. I was definitely seen as a weird kid for the food I brought to school, always very health conscious. And throughout my teenage years and into my 20s, I became much more interested in food. I had some deaths in my family from various chronic diseases. And so I became passionate about trying to figure out why people get sick and, and how I could prevent that from happening to other people. And food seemed like one of the largest, if not the largest levers. So I went down a pretty deep rabbit hole on all things food and health and nutrition. And you know, like we were talking about a little bit, once I was so deep into that food rabbit hole, it seemed very obvious that we should also consider the impact of a, of, of a food on the environment. You know, that was another very important variable. And so that's one of the things I've always found so interesting about food is it's like this lead domino in how we feel and perform and look as humans and also how our planet's doing. So it can have this big impact. So I started my career in e-commerce just because I was 18 and looking to start a business. And that was kind of the only idea we had. So we ran with it, but it was never my passion. It was kind of a stepping stone to learn how to actually run a business. And then after that business was acquired, I, I immediately went into food. So around, I think I was 25, started what would become a, a restaurant in the Bay Area worked on some other packaged food companies, built some software for food, and was just constantly thinking about this problem of vegetable oils. And it's been kind of on the background processor in my brain for a while now, and then started Zero Acre Farms a few years ago. So the restaurant background definitely helped because I feel like I can empathize with what chefs and, and restaurant owners are, are looking for. And then working with in the packaged food world, also understand if you're making a packaged food, it's it's not something you serve 30 seconds after it's made. There's a whole other host of requirements when it needs to sit in a bag or a jar or a carton for you know six months to a year and have brought all that to Zero Acre. And, you know, clearly, I think you didn't mention, but you're also, you know, co-founded Help Kitchen, which clearly has a, an impact lens in a big way. You know, you can maybe share a little bit about what that does, but you've obviously been thinking about how to how to make food more accessible to people as well and help people in need too. Yeah, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to, to talk about that. Help Kitchen is an organization that we started in 2020 after seeing the impact that the pandemic was having on individuals who don't necessarily know where their next meal is coming from or are you know relying on food they buy from the gas station for most of their calories. So Help Kitchen is an organization where anyone with a cell phone can text a number and they can go to a restaurant in their neighborhood and pick up a meal for free. So we raise money from high net worth philanthropic donors, and we pay restaurants to make that food for food insecure individuals. And it's a number of folks. I brought the, the food chops and some other folks brought the technology chops. And so it's all built around SMS and the team is very small, but we're able to serve millions of meals at this point by automating it all through SMS and, and these partner restaurant relationships. That's awesome. Well, and I'm curious, you know, you've obviously got a lot of relationships in the restaurant space. What do you see the path looking like for Zero Acre? Do you see going into restaurants as a priority or do you see it more, you know, eventually getting into the direct manufacturing part of processed food and, and everything like that? It's a huge priority that we're probably too early for right now, partly because of cost. And whether it's a food product or any other product, when you're just getting started, you know, all your unit costs are pretty high and things that I know very, very large companies are paying, you know, very large oil companies, like think Mazzola, you know, Procter and Gamble, what they're paying like a few cents per pound or unit for we're paying like dollars per unit right now, you know, think like bottles and cardboard boxes and freight. So we just got to build up scale. And as we build up that scale and, you know, put dollars into R and D, we'll hopefully bring those costs down. 
But I mean, that's really one of the primary things. The other is we don't want to go to restaurants and just do top-down sales and, and you know, say, hey, you should use cultured oil. Here's why. We want to focus on education. So consumers ultimately are the ones demanding that restaurants make a switch you know, and stop using all the all the harmful oils and switch to something better. And if that's us, great. If it's you know something else, but that's still an improvement, that's also great. And I presume, given what you just said about cost, at least initially, there's, there is somewhat of a green premium for your product. It'll be more expensive than a typical bottle of oil for the consumer, at least at, at the beginning. So you know, you're, you're doing direct sales via e-commerce, but you're kind of going after that, that Whole Foods customer to start, it sounds like. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I, I wish we could say we're cheaper than palm oil. One of the things we kind of say tongue in cheek is that we're actually the most affordable oil on the shelf. If you take into account all the externalities that are uh, generated from palm oil and soybean oil and the like. Oh, if only our economy took account of externalities. Wouldn't that, uh, that, nice? that That would solve a lot of problems, wouldn't it? <laughs> it really would. Maybe someday. So right now we're not there and our, you know, the way our government does accounting is not there, but we're right kind of in the range. We're between like a canola oil price and a premium extra virgin olive oil. So, you know, you get what you pay for and, and someone's got to pay for it eventually. But we also didn't want to be like a hundred dollars a bottle for some crazy premium oil. So, you know, it's already, already quite affordable. And, you know, speaking of externalities, obviously we've covered the externalities of the oil industry, whether it's deforestation or, you know, monocropping and, and the issues on biodiversity or human health. What externalities are there in Zero Acre? Like, have you guys done any kind of life cycle analysis of your product anticipated at scale when all of a sudden you're needing to build, whether it's bioreactors or, or use all these inputs? Like, what do you what do you feel like that looks like? And are there potential downside risks as well for a fully scaled global version of cultured oil? Cultured oil definitely has externalities. The benefit is that they're significantly lower than any other oil out there. So we've compared the sustainability numbers, yes, via life cycle analysis to a number of other common oils, soybean oil and olive oil and canola oil, sunflower oil, palm oil, etc. And we have soybean oil in the crosshairs. That's the vegetable oil that, at least in the U.S., accounts for about 60% of all oils and is particularly bad for you and particularly bad for the environment. And compared to soybean oil, cultured oil has about a 90% smaller land footprint. So it uses about 10 times less land and also about 10 times less water consumption required to produce cultured oil and about 10 times fewer greenhouse gases are emitted. So it's not zero. That's our goal. That's where we'd love to get to someday, maybe around the time that all the negative externalities are accounted for in the food system, but a fraction of conventional cooking oils. And we had talked about olive oil earlier. You know, olive, olive oil uses far more land and water. So cultured oil has something like a 300 times smaller footprint than, than olive oil. And, and we, we write about this. We have a sustainability report on our blog and our website, but it's pretty crazy how much water and land just one bottle of oil can save. And, you know, this is the case with other more sustainable foods too. Every, every bite, every bar, every package, you know, it, it really does add up. And I assume in terms of what your footprint itself looks like, it's a, it's some kind of warehouse or factory with bioreactors and the big, you're using water in those bioreactors, I'm, I'm guessing, but maybe, maybe talk a little bit just so people have a sense of, you know, what is producing cultured oil with zero acre actually look like? Yeah, they're large fermenters like brewing beer. So if you've ever seen large scale beer production or even small scale beer productions, you know, the same thing. So yeah, fermenters that are full of water and oil culture and the plant inputs that are fed to that oil culture. 
and you kind of just let them do their thing for a few days. You know, you give them enough oxygen, they need to breathe. And unlike an oil crop, which takes something like six months or longer to produce all the, all the oil within its cells, an oil culture only needs a few days. So once that oil culture is plump and full of oil, then it's removed from the fermenter and, and pressed. And so, and that, that's the process. And What's pretty cool about that is it's location agnostic. So that same process could happen in South Africa, in Siberia, or in Kansas, and you get the same oil. And you know that's not the case with any other way of producing oil. And even if you take the same crop, you know even the same crop on the same field, if they're on different ends of the field and maybe get different types of sunlight, they have completely different compositions, or, or they, they have different compositions. And so cultured oil is very consistent, which turns out it's quite helpful for food manufacturers when they, you know, they know they'll be getting the same thing every time. Interesting. You know, I always hear, sorry, I keep going back to beer, but you always hear like Guinness tastes better in the Dublin brewery itself because of the content of the, the water and the mineralization of the water. You could almost start to imagine like local versions of cultured oil that taste slightly differently because of different water table uniqueness that creates an all, all totally different version of local oil than we have today, which is crop-based. That is interesting. Yeah, that'd be cool. You know, that's not something that we've tested with a fine palate, but maybe. Yeah. Interesting. And do you imagine ultimately setting up essentially lots of micro, I don't know if you call them factories or, or what you call them, or breweries. do you imagine <laughs> breweries? Yeah. Or do you imagine, you know, it being more of a, you know, sort of large scale manufacturing footprints where you're, you're producing for an entire sort of geography in one place? Certainly there will be different footprints in different geographies. And that would also dictate what those plant inputs are. Certain plants grow more productively in certain parts of the world. So it wouldn't make any sense to, you know, have a facility in Asia and be, be shipping plants from North America to feed to the culture. But at the same time, it's, you know, this isn't like a, everyone has a fermenter on their kitchen counter. I mean, that'd be cool. Maybe, maybe someday. So you know, it'd be somewhere in between that. And I think ultimately it would, it would come down to what is the footprint of transportation and transportation in general gets a pretty bad rap in kind of like the, and I mean, I have a garden, I grow my own food. I'm a huge fan of that. But when you actually look at the impact of transportation on a food's footprint, you know, when you're shipping like hundreds of tons or thousands of tons of something on a boat, it's actually not that significant. It's everything else that goes into making that food. So, you know, we'd weigh that against the economics of having a number of smaller facilities versus a smaller number of large facilities. So economics and, and footprint, I think, would go into that decision, but not sure exactly right now. Yeah. And I would just wonder, eventually, as you're selling to large scale processed food manufacturers and whatnot, potentially they would even want to license your cocktail and your method and you know brew in-house to verticalize production. I don't know if that's the kind of business you're wanting to build or if you're wanting to keep the brand around it. We definitely want to keep the brand around it, partly because when you let go of that, especially with a premium product, you start to have authenticity issues and you start to have like a, a lack of trust. With like brandless no-name cell phones, they end up just being pieces of crap because no one's really standing behind them. Whereas, you know, you buy an Apple iPhone and it's like a, a piece of art and science fused into this incredible product. And that's also what happens with something like an olive oil. There are huge issues with adulteration because many people just buy whatever olive oil they find at the store as opposed to, you know, really buying a certain brand. So yeah, we, we definitely want to want to stand behind that with the brand. It's also, I mean, we've been brewing beer for, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years. So there are a lot of people out there who know how to brew beer. Aren't a lot of people out there who know how to brew oil. So it would be more difficult to be able to hand it off to a number of different partners. 
Makes sense. Let's talk about how you're you're capitalizing the business as you grow this. You you all raised a significant Series A, I guess, earlier this year with kind of a who's who of climate tech investors. Maybe share a little bit about that and, and also what you see the path for the business going forward. Do you see it you know, continuing to grow through venture capital? Do you see there being other forms of capitalization that will support the growth of the business? So yeah, we, we raised our Series A earlier this year and had raised a seed round before that. It was co-led by Lower Carbon Capital and 50 Years, who, who we work closely with. They're awesome. And a lot of the feedback that we got along the way was, at least what our investors told us about why they were excited, was that it wasn't only better for climate, it wasn't only better for the planet, but it, you know, it had this other component of also being better for human health. And I think where a lot of climate companies hit a wall or struggle is try to break out from the, you know, the My Climate Journey audience and listeners to a broader audience who needs to make a decision every day of how do I, you know, how do I spend my hard-earned money? And unfortunately, it doesn't seem like we're at the point yet where the majority of people are making that decision based on what's best for the planet. You know, first and foremost, it's like, are my taste buds going to like this? And then after that, it's, is this going to be good for me and my family? And then after that, it's, is this going to be good for the future of our planet? So, you know, ultimately you can have a really great climate impact by making a very healthy food that also has a small environmental footprint. So I think that's why a lot of investors were excited about what we're doing and that we're, you know, we're bringing a product to market, not 10 years after being founded, but pretty quickly here. And in terms of the path forward, we started Zero Acre Farms by self-funding. That didn't last too long because we realized this is a pretty capital-intensive business and will continue to be a pretty capital-intensive business. And we have a lot of infrastructure to build. So the Series B and then the Series C and you know that, that, whole, that whole process will continue to be part of the plan. We don't own our own facilities right now. That's, that's really expensive. So we, you know, we have some very close and strategic manufacturing partners. That will continue to be the plan for a little while. At some point, it may make sense to build it on our own. And, you know, th- there are ways of bringing in that capital, some non-dilutive funding that would not require, you know, venture money. So, I mean, we're open to a number of different ways of, of capitalizing the business. Ideally, everyone loves cultured oil so much that, you know, profits can ultimately funnel back into R&D and fund the business. But we're just getting started. So I don't want to put the cart ahead of the horse there. What sort of talent do you need on the team as you grow? You know, I guess we, have, we haven't talked about who you, you even co-founded the business with yet, but you presumably have some folks who are fermentation experts on the team alongside you, but maybe, maybe share a little bit about what talent has gotten you to where you are today, as well as where you see the biggest needs are going forward. Yeah. My background in restaurants and tech was certainly not enough to uh, figure out how to get a microorganism to produce fat. So my co-founders are Steve Del Carteret and Jay Kiesling. And they've both been working with microorganisms for a long time. And a lot of that work has been in fatty acid production in microorganisms, but in a number of different fields. So a lot of relevant work that they brought to the team and to the table. And we've, we've hired a number of, of really incredible scientists and supply chain folks and marketers and you know, all the ingredients necessary for building a team and launching a product. And that's in everything from starting with the strain, the microorganism it's, itself, all the way down to the downstream processing or actually getting the oil out and you know getting it into a bottle. And there are a million little steps in between that, that take really smart people to do and to figure out. And going forward, I think it's a lot of doubling down on you know the, those core teams that, w- that we've already built across science and marketing and operations. This would have been a really hard business 
not that long ago. You know, it would have been a really hard business 10 years ago. It would have been a really hard business 20 or 30 years ago. The idea of food science and food tech was sort of limited to what like Procter and Gamble and Kellogg were doing, you know, at like a very large scale. It wasn't so much a startup thing. I always think of, you know, Clark Griswold getting the bonus for his coated cereal varnish in Christmas vacation, right? Like that's the, (laughs) when I think of food science, that's where where my mind goes. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Like how can we get this processed food to, you know, be a little shinier, to last a little longer, to make you crave it a little bit more? I mean, yeah, that was food science up until recently. And I think other companies have helped pave the way that, hey, we can actually use food to do something good in the world. And you know, scientists and and other talented people are, they want to spend their time in a way that they can talk about at Thanksgiving and, you know, feel good about it and feel good about how they spend most of their waking hours. So all of that, you know, which we weren't responsible for, but we're certainly taking advantage of it in, in that it, it makes it a lot easier to hire great people. Well, on that note, you've got, you know, listeners here who, you know, may be interested in helping you with that mission or may just be interested in being curious consumers of your product. What should people here who are interested in, in what you're doing, how should they take action? For curious consumers, Cultured Oil is now for sale at zeroacre.com. So if you're interested in checking out Cultured Oil, you know, every purchase is a vote toward a better future, we think. And you know, every purchase of cultured oil, we're a public benefit corporation. So any profits just are going to go right back into, you know, looking to bring down the price over time. And for people interested in supporting the mission in other ways, we're always hiring at zeroacre.com slash jobs. So shoot us a note. We'd love to hear from you. Talk about the PBC side of things, the, the public benefits corporation. Like what was the process of doing that with the company? And what does that actually entail for you from a, both a day-to-day perspective and a long-term perspective? Yeah, we we started this business because there was this very specific problem we wanted to solve. It wasn't like, let's go out and try to make millions of dollars. You know, what business do we think we need to do to in order to do that? So, you know, when we were fundraising and putting together our board and, you know, starting to realize, okay, we're not going to be the only ones making decisions around here or having a say in things. We want to make sure that was very clear, actually less for people that are involved now because everyone is extremely aligned. But thinking ahead to, I don't know, we have a board of a lot more people someday and, you know, maybe even shareholders someday. Most businesses, C corporation, S corporation, you know, they have a fiduciary responsibility to make the decisions that are best for the bottom line. And that comes down to also like who is going to acquire us and what are they going to do with this? And if the price is good enough, most companies, they have to accept certain offers. As a public benefit corporation, we have a legal responsibility to do what's right by our mission of, in our case, improving human and planetary health. And so that just makes it a lot easier when we're talking about Hey, is there an acquisition offer on the table? You know, how, how are we going to price this product? What products are we going to bring to market? If they're not aligned with that mission, then it's not that hard of a discussion. It's just clearly something that we can't do. So we wanted to do that to really align everything we do. Honestly, I don't think being a public benefit corporation really affects what we do day to day because we just do it naturally and we hire people who are passionate about the cause. And then the public benefit corporation, when people find out, it's like, oh, that makes sense. You know, that's par for the course for Zero Acre. Jeff, thank you so much. Anything I didn't ask that you wanted to make sure people were aware of? I think you asked the right questions, Cody. So I appreciate the time and it was a fun conversation. Awesome. Thanks for your time today. Hopefully everyone gets a chance to check out Cultured Oil at zeroacre.com. All right. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.com. Dot co. Note that is dot co, not dot com. Someday we'll get the dot com, but right now, dot co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22 
where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.